Tēnā koutou, no mai, haere mai. Good evening and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. We're set to decide whether New Zealand should legalise cannabis for recreational use in a referendum that'll be held at the next election. Tonight, the two MPs leading the debate for and against. Nationals Paula Bennett and Green MP Chloe Swarbrick. Then, MMP Master Winston Peters. The reason why most issues of leadership arise in political parties is because they haven't got one. And that's not New Zealand's first problem. Once again, he's positioning to be political king or queen maker at next year's election. We covered a lot in our interview this afternoon. He told me he wants to see the evidence on pill testing and will make a final decision before Christmas. And it's 100 years since women were first given the right to stand for parliament in Aotearoa. Incredible, the law passed in 1919, but it took another 14 years before a female MP was elected. A tough, male-dominated environment back then, but what's it like now? But most of us have received death threats, rape threats. It was awful and severe, but I'm not even going to repeat it because that's exactly what the bullies want. I remember being called a trout. But we start tonight with the referendum question facing all voters at next year's election. Whether to allow the legalisation and regulation of recreational cannabis for the use of people aged 20 and over. It's part of the coalition government's commitment to reduce the harm caused by drugs and take power away from the criminals who sell them. Paula Bennett says she was 50-50 on this, but is a firm no. She's just returned from Canada where she's been taking a look at overseas regulation models. Green Party MP Chloe Swarbrick is a firm supporter of reform. Tina Kordua, thanks for making this happen. Thanks for being here tonight. Chloe, I will begin with you. Why should New Zealand legalise recreational cannabis? Thank you, Jack. Uh, so imagine in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where anybody, no matter where they are born in this country, is able to get access to mental health or addiction treatment, no matter where they are. Imagine an Aotearoa New Zealand where we're not throwing away hundreds of millions of dollars a year and thousands of lives by locking people up and throwing away the key for using cannabis. We can have that Aotearoa New Zealand, but for 40 odd years, politicians have decided to continue down the pathway of failed rhetoric that is the war on drugs in exchange for a few votes here and there, uh, but also actually the best possible outcomes for New Zealanders. We have the opportunity to turn that on its head, to pay attention to the evidence and to turn around a situation where we get the worst of all worlds at the moment under the status quo, where we are empowering the criminal underground and we are pushing people who have problems further and further into the shadows. Paula, why shouldn't New Zealand legalise recreational cannabis? Well, first of all, I don't disagree with Chloe, but actually people are not getting locked up um, for using cannabis and uh, haven't been for quite some time. I think it was two people in 2018. I think there were seven in 2017 and there were always other things going on. It wasn't the first time that they'd been caught. And now, of course, with the changes to the um, Misuse of Drugs Act, they're not getting locked up and police time isn't going into that. I'm with her on mental health issues and addiction and seeing more for that and everyone in New Zealand getting it. I worry about normalisation. I worry that we haven't got the testing for drug driving. Uh, I worry about what a retail uh, looks like and how many stores there'll be. Um, I don't like the harm that alcohol does in New Zealand and I think there's a risk of us actually going, it becoming um, more readily available. I don't like the increase of drug use, um, particularly for the sort of 18 to 24 year olds that I've seen in, um, in jurisdictions that have 
legalised. I think there's a whole lot of unknown answers to questions and I simply wish we were waiting a little bit longer so we could see more of that evidence coming through. Let me ask this, is the current prohibition model effective in minimising harm? No, but is legalising effective in minimising harm. So part of the argument is that teen use has not gone up in those jurisdiction, uh, jurisdictions that have legalised. And I would say on early evidence that I'd probably agree with it, right, under 18-year-olds in particular, yeah. although there has been a spike when it becomes legalised. But that doesn't mean there's less harm. It doesn't mean they're not using. Um, it doesn't mean that actually they, they're, in fact, we're seeing an increase in, in um, visits to the ED and things. So I agree, is prohibition actually causing harm or is it the drugs themselves and why people are using them? And I think we'd all agree about putting more into people's lives earlier to turn them away from drug use. But at the moment, harm is an issue. Between 250,000 and 300,000 New Zealanders are regular cannabis users. More than half of New Zealand adults admit to using cannabis under the current model. So what do you propose we do differently? So do you think there'll be fewer if we legalise? So is the harm because it's not currently legalised or is the harm because it can lead to increased uh, mental health issues uh, because it can get in the hands of younger people if it's there because they're getting it from the black market. So, so if we're harm minimising, I think we need to define what that is and then work out whether or not it feels like we're leaping to let's legalise without going what is the actual problem mm. and then what is the best response to it. Yeah, if I may. So the current problem is that absolutely there are a number of people, a number of young people as well who are being exposed to cannabis. We have, for example, Joe Bowden, who has produced some of the best research in the world on the detrimental impacts that early cannabis use can have on young people, particularly associated to poor outcomes later in life, educational, um, as well as in employment or otherwise. Uh, and Joe, interestingly, in talking about all of these harms that cannabis can cause, particularly to young people, he is a massive advocate for a cautious approach to legal regulation because of the ability that we have under the control of legal regulation to reduce access, particularly for younger people. But on top of that, the issue isn't just that access for younger people, it's also about empowering the criminal underground. And we know for a fact that right now, simply through virtue of the enforcement that we're trying to apply to cannabis prohibition, we are literally setting on fire $200 million a year that could be better spent, targeted on things that I think Paula would agree with, like methamphetamine, uh, or on mental health and addiction treatment. But we're not doing that now. I mean, we, we may have been in the past, but actually, as we all know, police are not prosecuting and not actively in spending that money there. And I don't, and I do want to, I think the black market's the big argument, mm. right? Like, let's do it. And heck, I don't want young people going to gang headquarters. But I've got to say, that means you have to increase supply. That means it has to be more readily available. That means you need a price point that actually means it's cheaper well, than can, the Can I just market. bring some numbers to you? Yeah. So, so yeah, Paula, I know you've just returned from <coughs> Canada. According <coughs> to the National Cannabis Survey uh, in Canada, 40% of people are still buying cannabis on the black market. Is that a good number, Chloe? A year into legalisation in it, Canada? It means 60% of people aren't purchasing cannabis but it's from hardly the a illicit bullet, market. Is it? it's and not and a it's gone up and more Nobody, people are using. Interestingly, the only um, demographic where it has gone up, and that was a novelty bump in the first quarter, was among 45 and over. Okay. Um, so that's an interesting side point. But the other point that really needs to be made is that 
what we are talking about here is a shift away from the worst of all worlds in the status quo, where we have unknown people consuming unknown substances in unknown places and no opportunity to intervene in that harm. I'm going to get onto the usage thing in a little more yeah, depth in a moment because I think, it, I think it is really important. But I, I, most of the evidence is... Uh, is completely obvious, right? It is people under the age of 25 mm -hmm. who are at the greatest risk of serious harm from cannabis use. So, Chloe, why do we set that age at 20? Why should you be able to buy it at 21 if at that, if that age it can still cause you significant harm? We know for a fact that substances of any type, whether it is alcohol, and I absolutely agree with Paula, that we haven't got the balance right there when it comes to legal regulation. We know for a fact that substances of any type can cause harm to younger people's brain, particularly as they're developing, but we have to draw a line in the sand somewhere. At some point... So why not 25? Uh, because at 25 years old, we are still going to have potentially a large potential black market and we have to address the issue of personal responsibility at that certain point. So we have to find a balance between the science and when people are, have their brains developed enough to pay attention to the evidence and to be educated and make those educated so mature decisions. What you're telling us effectively is that if it were 25, if that was the age limit, 28-year-olds are more likely to buy cannabis legally and then give it to their friends who are under the age of 25. But by having the age limit at 20, 22-year-olds are not therefore likely to buy cannabis legally and give it to people under the age of 25. What I'm saying is that wherever you set the age, you are going to have to deal with what happens to the people who are underneath that age. And what we are saying with the age of 20 years old is that that is a practical step which is measured to find that balance between personal responsibility and the age at which people can make so people under the age decisions. of 20 even if legalization goes through people under the age of 20 will be will have easier access to cannabis. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. The point here is to restrict access. If we want to talk about the message that we're sending to younger people in particular through legal regulation, it's that nobody should be consuming this under the age of 20. The only people who are consuming it should be doing so with appropriate mm. education and with that evidence base. I just I want to go to those usage figures mm. and I've got a few different ones. So Colorado was the first state in the United States to legalise the sale of recreational cannabis. So cannabis use amongst people over the age of 18 increased after legalisation, uh, between 18 and 25-year-olds, people who had used cannabis within the last month went from 26% of people to 32%. However, teenage use went down slightly from 10% to 9%. Uh, in Washington State, there was a small increase in the high, number of high school students using cannabis. In Oregon, there was a small decrease in the number of high, high school students using cannabis. Would you agree, Paula, that in those states, those US states where they have legalised cannabis there hasn't been a significant increase in the number of teenagers using cannabis. Yes, and even more exciting, Jack, is that um, teenage use in New Zealand's going down mm. and has been progressively for quite a few years. Um, they're getting smarter than we were when we were young um, and that they're actually not drinking and not smoking tobacco either and they're consuming less cannabis. Well. So actually <laughs> our stats for, for teens are going down without us having to legalise. And I would just say, wow, let's keep that going and spend some of that money on education and, and what we can. So I agree with you, there's not a huge spike in, in teens in particular um, using cannabis when it's legalised, but I would argue New Zealand's heading in the right direction. We are seeing fewer young people use it. Why risk it? Why look at the normalisation? Why look at the proliferation of um, retail outlets that we're going to have to get if we're going to actually get rid of that? What about decriminalisation? Can, can Paula, can you define for us the difference between a regulated market and decriminalisation? And would you prefer a decriminalisation 
education model. In fact, I think as well for the for some viewers, um, we should actually go medicinal decriminalisation and, um, and legalisation. I just don't want to go down people, the medicinal I know, but people really do. I have so many people come up to me and say, why are you against medicinal? So number one, actually I am all for medicinal. I think there, mm. is, um, there is value in that CBD and it can make a difference. So decriminalisation is where actually you are not criminally legal um, penalised for using, mm. but it is still illegal. Uh, and all drugs actually in many cases, but um, decriminalising marijuana. Um, but we've effectively done that through the Misuse of Drugs Act, where we've said to police, you will not prosecute people for the use of um, drugs, you will get them the uh, the treatment they need. Instead. Which, unfortunately, the National Party voted against, but that is, uh, that oh, is yeah, an argument I for sure a different did. time. That is an argument for a different time. <laughs> um, the point that I want to make, however, um, despite Paula saying that we have been moving away from that criminalisation model for cannabis, is, and whilst you cite that only several, several people have gone to jail every year, we still have less, just less than 4,000 people receiving cannabis convictions. Mm. Cannabis convictions still ruin lives and they ruin potential, whether you're talking about mm. employment opportunities or the opportunity to travel overseas. Uh, the really important thing that we get with cannabis legalisation, legal regulation around the supply chain is the opportunity to impose a legal duty of care and standards on potency. Anybody who wants to talk about how the cannabis these days is far stronger than it was back in my day, all of that kind of thing, it's really important mm. to recognise the only way we get to control the potency is through that regulation. But they the didn't in Canada. Well, Canada has some failings that we can learn from, and Canada hasn't nailed it on a number of fronts. We were talking just before about how they haven't got mm. the number of outlets or the tax revenue set at the right level. OK, just before we go to the break, I want to be really clear on that, Paula. National voted against those changes yeah, to the Misuse of Drugs Act. But, but would you support decriminalisation? I'm, Decri sure. Decrimin I'm not sure. Okay. I would have okay. to see what that looked like. I'd have to know that there was the rehabilitation. Just, it would be another whole okay. debate. I want a clarity on that point. That's great. Yeah. Um, we will pause there for a moment. We want to dig into a couple of critical points after the break. For example, do you want to know if your employee is stoned? There is no easy 100% accurate test. So would legalising cannabis make our workplaces is less safe and how do we stop people from driving under the influence? Kia ora, welcome back. We are debating whether New Zealanders should support legalising cannabis, a question for next year's referendum. Chloe Swarbrick, can you quickly, scientifically quantify someone's level of impairment? At present? Uh, when you're talking about impairment, impairment versus chemicals registering in somebody's system. Yes, impairment. Two very different things. Yeah. yeah, so when you're talking about cannabis impairment, you cannot currently quickly, through a chemical test, discern somebody's impairment. So how do we know... You have to when, do that physically. Where, how do we know that someone who is driving is under the influence of cannabis or simply used cannabis several days ago? Well, that is where you have to get the person out of the car and do a test uh, in the same way that we used to back in the day before we had breathalysers when it comes to alcohol, But is that, is that a realistic option? A, a hopscotch-style test at the side of the road for whoever might be under the influence of cannabis or indeed in the workplace? I want to take us to the current day where we know for a fact that 11% of the population, 400,000 New Zealanders, are using on an annual basis. You self-cited facts saying that quarter of a million 
women are using on a regular basis. A number of these people will currently be driving impaired. We have no idea where they are and they are operating with next to no information about how much they can consume or how far between consuming and driving they should be able to um, engage in that kind of activity. So this is currently the status quo and by moving towards legal regulation we have the opportunity to cap potency, to educate people about the harms and if you look overseas in places like Canada they have not had any market increase in drug driving. Should so, we? But look, let's get to it though. So you can actually test. It takes about five to eight minutes. It's saliva testing. It will not always show impairment and you would have to set it fairly high, right? So the argument is between two and five nanograms you're impaired. They've set it there at 25, right? But I would argue even if we set it high we should be doing it. There's young people now, four of them going out. We've got one sober driver. The sober driver won't drink alcohol but all four will take some dope. And actually there is all of the evidence that says that young people think that drug driving is safer than drink driving. And of course it's not. And that's so we have, have a lot we do. We've just we got a whole lot of work we've got yeah. to do there. So we can actually do saliva testing. Um, I would argue set it high so that you're not capturing people with false negatives, um, false positives, sorry, because you can't, you know, that can happen. Mm -hmm. Let alone, as I know you're going to get to the workplace and everything else, let alone people that are mixing alcohol with mm -hmm. um, smoking marijuana, which happens a lot, mm -hmm. or consuming Pres marijuana. Yeah. So that's happening a lot, and how we sort of get to that. And tell me that legalising is going to make it better. I would just, however, comment that the Associate Minister of Health is presently yeah. working through a process to work on that saliva testing process, and we are entertaining things like Paula has just put forward. Chloe, should workplaces be allowed to test their employees? So we're working through that at the moment What's and the cross-party group. So uh, my position is that if somebody who on their weekend is being an adult and engaging in the activities that they choose to engage in and that activity is illegal, they come to work uh, a few days later and they are not impaired, then it should not be the it should not be with an interest or it it, it should not bear any uh, th there is absolutely no concern I think that the workplace or employer should, should the have. police be allowed to use cannabis. That's the issue of employment, and this is where we get, end up getting into a situation like with Canada uh, and a few other states around the US where they have uh, had different types of employment set different types of standards. For example, we were talking previously about within the army. Uh, so people are not allowed to, for example, operate heavy machinery or otherwise uh, if they consume at all. So I think that there are going to be different standards for different places, but what we know for a mm. fact is that right now we have, uh, aside from urination tests, sometimes saliva tests, uh, we do not have a good grasp on how many people are presently doing this. We know that right now people aren't going to work, uh, you know, drunk. But this so it's not easy. all of a sudden going to open this massive Pandora's box. People, though, yeah. right? this, I mean, this will be a point of concern for a lot of people because unlike a, a simple breath test, you mm -hmm. can't immediately quantify someone le someone's level of impairment with that instant and it, And if it's legalised. And it's quite different when it's legalised because you're sending a message. And what I saw in Canada is people saying, this is now my human right to consume. Mm. And actually, you know, like, and, and I get the dangerous part of it, but, you know, for police, they just can't turn up um, impaired 
disappeared, but then it's police with guns, there's different rules, and it is a really, really grey area. Paula, can I, can I ask you about, about alcohol? You, you referenced alcohol before the ad break and said you were concerned about the level of alcohol harm in New Zealand. Would you support uh, regulations or tighter regulations around alcohol advertising? Uh, I think it, it's so difficult in that area because we kind of let the cat out of that bag. It's and pretty it's easy run to so change. Well, we do it with So how are we going to do it actually then with marijuana, with cannabis? But we're discussing cannabis at the moment, mm. so are we going to have as many outlets? Can you buy cannabis in the same retail outlet? I could, I'd love to buy alcohol. But we don't have the answers. It's all good that you're here giving them, Chloe, but where's the minister that's actually writing this legislation? Where's the responsibility from the actual government and the ministers and giving the right information to New Zealanders it's so a really that they can It's a really simple minimisation question. Would you support tighter regulations on alcohol It would depend what it looked like and what it was in line with and um, where it's been. We have made changes before, so it would all be, I mean, I worry about domestic violence, I worry about all of those kinds. Well, if I thought it would work, but I'm not, I'm not convinced okay. I've seen the evidence that actually telling people fewer ads is what's going to stop them drink, drinking and beating up their, um, their, their wives in the week. Well, it was suggested by a 2014 report uh, uh, chaired by Graham Lowe, but I do, however, um, just want to say that what we are proposing here with legal regulation of cannabis is tighter regulations than we presently have for tobacco. OK. I have to get to and a couple, of, a couple, of, a couple of questions very quickly. We've only got a couple of minutes okay. left. We've asked viewers for their questions tonight because they've been looking forward to hearing from you both. Um, Paula, this is a question from Harrison. Um, can't we just be able to give the East Coast Bays, Ruatoria and the surrounding area, some actual employment opportunities? This is the perfect opportunity for, to I went and saw. I went and region. saw one of the, the big um, uh, places that are growing it over there. I've got to say, the jobs actually are horticultural jobs, if you like. They were actually minimum wage. They were really really, really mm. horrible jobs. They were on your feet trimming um, the flowers of these plants. They were not... Everyone sort of has this utopia that's going to make so much money and be so great. Actually, they were pretty awful, um, low-income roles. Uh, from Judy, Chloe, what protection should exist for children and cannabis smoke? If people are allowed to smoke inside their own homes, what protections are there for children? So this is where we can look at instituting different types of penalties mm. for different types of behaviour. In the same way that it is absolutely cruel and also criminal to subject a child to torture, whether it is doing something in terms of feeding them alcohol or uh, for any other form of substance. It is criminal negligence of a child. So we're not all of a sudden going to be mm. opening the floodgates and saying that we're going to allow criminal negligence of children. That is absolutely going to remain a big problem. Uh, so, not a big problem, sorry, it's going right. to remain a criminal offence. Okay, we've, got to, we've really got to get going. One last question for you, Paula, and then I'll have a, a little closing statement from each of you. What do we do if the country votes no next year? Do we just keep the status quo? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we do it's at the easy. moment. Yeah. <laughs> Chloe, you can, um, you can kick us off with a little closing statement this evening. Yeah, I guess uh, the point that I just want to leave people with is that right now we have the worst possible situation. We are empowering the criminal underground and we know for a fact that 400,000 New Zealanders are using cannabis on an annual basis. 80% of New Zealanders will have tried cannabis by the time they're 21. The majority of people will be exposed to it while they're at high school. We have the opportunity to get some form of control over what is currently chaos. And the best way to do that is to legally mm. regulate cannabis and to ensure that we are providing those wraparound supports and that potential for disruption in the supply chain with that duty of care imposed on those uh, who are supplying it to those who are purchasing. We're kidding ourselves if we think that our teens are all of a sudden going to stop consuming cannabis because we legalise it. They'll still get it from the black market because they won't be able to get it legally because they'll be underage and the harms and the dangers will still be there with them. There 
there are real issues around impairment, drug driving, what it will mean. What I saw in Canada was that the 25 stores that were in you know, one, one province were not enough. They were estimating going to 1,000 within eight years because actually people have a right to have access to that. I'm not sure I want that in New Zealand. I think we should wait, get more evidence from places like Canada and then debate it and, and decide as a country. Kia ora kōrua. Thank you very much for your time this evening. I hope we can continue this conversation over the next year or so. Justice Minister Andrew Little will introduce draft legislation early next year. He has a cross-party reference group, which Paula tells me she has volunteered to be a part of. She's still waiting for a reply. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on our Facebook page or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Next up, Winston Peters. Uh, it's a requirement for political leaders and, dare I say, anybody in Cabinet to have a medical check once a year, make sure they're OK. And I've had mine. All right? That's where this conversation ends. Fighting fit indeed and gearing up for next year's election. We talk climate change, drug testing and what he really thinks of Simon Bridges. And celebrating 100 years of women MPs, Fenna Owen looks at what women have achieved and what being a female politician is like in 2019. That's coming up. No my hi to my, welcome back. Winston Peters spoke of the resilience of Christchurch at his party's annual conference held in Ōtautahi over the weekend. He knows a thing or two about resilience as well. Now aged 74, he became an MP in Robert Muldoon's national government in 1979 and rejects any suggestion he could be retiring soon. But his party is showing signs of regeneration. The youth wing garnered some attention at the weekend by calling on the party to reconsider its opposition to drug testing at music festivals. And I began by asking Winston Peters if he supports that remit. Oh, I most certainly support the remit going before the uh, full convention. It came off the floor for the first time ever in 27 years of our organisation. There was a seriously sound debate. It's a complex problem. And frankly, there's many sides to it, but what we want is some seriously, serious empirical research, uh, not just rumour and gossip, but serious research as to what on earth's going on here. And so we'd like to commission that, go forward and make a decision as a result of that information. How long is that likely to take? Well, it's going to be much sooner rather than later, uh, before Christmas. And you'll make a decision after that? No, oh, no. We hope to have that decision all made well before the season of concern that gave rise to the uh, young New Zealand First remit in the first place. You personally won't take a position at this stage? Well, I'd like to see the evidence, and I think so would the whole party. And I did, indeed, I think so would the whole country. Do you support light rail to Auckland Airport? Um, let me say very clear that in the plans that we're concerned about, that is, as Minister of Kiwi Rail, uh, I'm concerned for the join-up from the far north to uh, Hamilton, and obviously the connection to the airport will be heavy rail, because it's all, all the, the utilities are there waiting for that to happen. So you don't support the light rail plan down Dominion Road? I gave you my answer. Could you see yourself writing something like that? Writing it? Yeah. Writing it? Could you, would you take light rail to the airport? Well, all over the world I've taken all sorts of rail to the airport. Uh, the secret is to have a utility that the public does use because it's functional, on time and fair in price. Are you satisfied at the moment that the plans 
fulfil those requirements? Well, you're not being very clear in what your question is. What, well, what requirements? The, the, the six if billion. About, yeah. If you're talking about what I'm handling with respect to QV Rail, the 94 million that's going into no, fixing I'm North. No, I'm, I'm talking about the, the currently costed at six billion dollar plan to have light rail down Dominion Road to the airport. Well, you said currently costed. That's the uh, 64 million dollar question. Is the current are the current costs accurate? We've seen blowouts, and I can give you all manner of uh, transport uh, infrastructure utilities that have blown out. We can't afford this to happen. At the moment then, you don't support those plans as they stand? No, at the moment we're waiting desperately to hear accurate forecasts and hopefully not a whole lot of excuses. Oh, we got the geotech analysis wrong. That's what you always hear as by way of excuse in this country. Are farmers being hard done by at the moment? Farmers? Hmm. No, quite the contrary. Farmers in this country if their leadership was acting any way responsibly, uh, if the leadership had a grasp of what they should have been doing and not allowing the Fonterra disaster to happen, the Westland disaster to happen, the Silver Ferns Farms disaster to happen, if they, the leadership was talking properly, they'd be celebrating this government because they've gone from 80 cents plus US per, uh, dollar to 64, 65, which is about 22% improvement in their profits. All farming in terms of product at the moment is at um, great pricing. It is much higher than they ever had. And that's why exports, for the first time in a long time, against GDP are going that way and not that way. So should agriculture be covered in the ETS? Yes. But let's, let, tell you, let me tell you what's going to happen, because it's in the coalition agreement. And if you read it very carefully, agriculture will have, by 2022, to get ready to demonstrate their ability to handle this issue. Uh, every encouragement will be made to ensure that it happens. There'll be an independent uh, climate change commission that will be examining the progress thus far. It will then report as to whether they've met the, the uh, four targets or they're mm. performing at 100%. And only then will they make suggestions to improve farming's performance. Uh, farming uh, in 2025 20, uh, will only then come into the emissions trading scheme, but under this situation, 95% of the cost covered by the New Zealand taxpayer from Invercargill to Kaitaia, street, town, country and city, and the other 5% of incentivisation will handle that as well. So in short, there's a whole lot going on. There's some exciting announcements to be made within a matter, oh, I can, I'd love to tell you what day, but very, 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 very soon. Does that mean you've and agreed? Here comes the, but here comes the, the, the great thing. You know, we have been talking to the Nordic countries, that's the reason why we've opened an embassy there, uh, because they're putting billions into these issues, and we believe with great confidence that with the science that we've got coming, that the farmers can be relaxed and be assured that their industry will be long-term survive and highly profitable. So does James Shaw have your total support with the Zero Carbon Bill? Uh, that's the converse. We filled out the coalition agreement. The Zero Carbon Bill is a New Zealand first response. I can point you to the uh, um, coalition agreement right now and to the section because I thought you might raise that. New Zealand First has always been responsible that, about that. But we are not going to have um, our major industry, regarded as some sort of pariah, we know that farming can adjust to this, can be highly profitable, and much of the scaremongering that's going on now 
It's just so wrong. So do you want to see changes made in order to appease farmers and their concerns? No, no, if the farmers were following what New Zealand First has said, and I've said, then they'd be totally relaxed. If they're going to follow some of their scaremongering leadership, that's 100% wrong, and who can't tell us why uh, they allowed Paula Bennett to go to Paris and sign up, from which and on which they've never responded. Uh, if they're going to rely upon them, they'll always get be in trouble. But they trust us. I tell you, within a matter of a very short time, they're going to find that the scaremongering was fake news. Let me ask about immigration. It was a centrepiece policy for New Zealand First heading yes. into the last election to cut migration to 10,000. Net migration, by the latest numbers, is at 55,000. Why haven't you reduced those figures more Well, your figures are wrong for a start, but let me say what we campaigned on was not what we got on the coalition agreement, because if you don't get the massive support you expect, you've got to tailor your demands. But that was your centrepiece policy. I mean, more above anything policy, else. But when you're in an MMP environment, you have to go into negotiations and get the best you possibly can out of it with the votes you've got. 55,000 isn't no, no, even no, close no, no, to 10,000. Let me finish here. So you're asking me now, when we didn't get the mass backing of the country to nevertheless deliver the policy we campaigned on when we had to compromise on that. And let me tell you what happened. We said to the government, we want this matter seriously looked at. Uh, we said that the information and research that the uh, Department of Immigration is using is fake, it's false, it's not sound enough. And now we've put our minds to it. We've already changed the formula, so to speak, in which you can make judgment. Let me tell you, if you've got a department saying that a returning New Zealander after 10 years is an immigrant, then we've got no information upon which to rely. Well, we're fixing that. And even so, we're slow off the mark, I so, agree. So, so we're, we're, down, hang on, we're down 10,000 already from where we were. But you promised 10,000 would be the net figure. According to the New Zealand election study, this was the number one priority for your voters. Not health, not housing. This was the number one priority. Well, and by I the latest figures, you've missed that target by 45,000. Why don't you go to every party before the election and say, well, you promised that, why don't you deliver? They'll all tell you in this coalition. But you're in a unique position of power. No, no, no. They'll all tell you. Sorry, Jack. We had to go and have a negotiation with New Zealand first. We had to go and, in the Labour, Party, uh, in Labour Party's uh, uh, terms, go and talk to the Greens. You have to compromise. We put together the best policy we possibly could, and now it's starting to work. Do you respect Simon Bridges? In what way? Are there characteristics that you respect about Simon Bridges? Do you well, respect there, there him are, as a person? There are some, and there are some that I don't respect him for. I mean, if you claim to have a business understanding, the next question is, well, what do you know personally about business? Have you ever had your own business? You know what I mean? You know what it's like to try and go from the serious red to the black and all the sacrifice that takes. Now, you've got to ask those sorts of questions. You've got to ask, what, what is the person's experience? How can, or how loyal is he to people? How can you consider going into a coalition? How can you even consider going into a coalition with a party whose deputy leader you are currently taking legal action against. Well, now look, do you know what the sub-judicate sub rule means? It means you can't ask me questions like that, and I can't possibly answer I'm not answer asking them. you any detail with regard to the case itself. I'm you asking you how, how can you possibly even entertain the idea of working with a party whose deputy well, leader you, you are currently this, taking legal action against? If you don't know the sub-judicate rule, then I suggest that your project manager and your employers go out and find out what it means. It means I can't answer that question. 
And that's a very unfair line of approach. Someone preparing you for this program should have told you that. Is there any foreseeable circumstance over the next 12 months in which New Zealand First would leave the coalition agreement in favour of a confidence and supply agreement with Labour? That was written by a, a so-called senior journalist. It was bulldust when he wrote it. It is what I told him it was. I asked him why on earth have you written a thing like that and he said, I've got my sources. So now, there you is no foreseeable you circumstance? You can't do much with people when they do a thing like that. And frankly, it's not good enough in our, our political environment for people to make it up as they go along. I've shaken hands with Jacinda Ardern, and we intend to keep our word for three years. Are voters entitled to know about the health of their political leaders? Well, to the extent that uh, it's a requirement for political leaders and, dare I say, anybody in Cabinet to have a medical check once a year, make sure they're OK. And I've had mine. What right. does it say? That's where this conversation ends. Was it a bunion operation, Mr Peters? <laughs> See, there you go again. <laughs> so I could ask you and drill down with some information about your health. Well, except but that I'm, I'm a not, nice guy. I'm not the I'm Deputy not gonna, Prime Minister yeah, of the Yeah, but hang on, you're paid for by the taxpayer. But you're I'm not in a position of you're leadership. You're responsible to the same master I am, the taxpayer. Just tell us this finally, then. Will you... What do you mean finally? I thought this was going to be a fascinating conversation will, will about you, an exciting party called New Zealand will First. Will you lead New Zealand First in the next election? Well, that's over to my caucus colleagues and my party to decide. What is your intention? Well, I don't quite know why you're asking that question. If you're talking about leadership, the reason why most issues of leadership arise in political parties is because they haven't got one. And that's not New Zealand's first problem. Winston Peters, we spoke late this afternoon. After the break, 100 years of women MPs. Parliament was once the ultimate old boys club, but is it still sexist? We're just not seeing that focus from a part-time prime minister in government. Would he have said that to a male? Of course not. Kia ora te New Zealand women are famous for getting the vote in 1893, but it took another 26 years before they were allowed to stand for Parliament. That happened exactly a century ago, and to celebrate, a new book has been compiled to profile the 150 women who've been members of Parliament in that time. Here's Fena Owen. It is a species of insanity to talk of ladies being admitted to Parliament to guide the destinies of the country. Our 19th century politicians reenacted word for word. Women got the vote in 1893, but female MPs, unthinkable. It took a very long time and a lot more fighting before uh, we were then, through a piece of legislation, allowed to stand. Legislation allowing women the right to stand went through Parliament in 1919. These three amazing pioneers were the first to stand when we could. But it wasn't until 1933 that a woman won a seat. That's Elizabeth McCombs, even if it was her late husband's electorate. Very early on, it was through uh, that familial connection, whether it be uh, succeeding a husband or, in Fetu Terekatni Sullivan's case, succeeding her father. Then there was Mabel. No one messed with Mabel. <laughs> the great honour that has been done to the women of New Zealand by my appointment to Cabinet rank. Yes, Mabel Howard, who served 10 terms, was not only our first female Cabinet Minister, she was the first woman Cabinet Minister in the Commonwealth. Yeah. 
Wives of MPs were traditionally part of their husband's support crew. Whereas the women MPs had to do everything themselves, including uh, in some instances going home, cleaning the house and cooking the tea. Down through the decades, there were the trailblazers in what was still a man's world. National's Ruth Richardson was the first MP to breastfeed at work after insisting on a room for her baby daughter and nanny. Circumstances dictate during the first session that she must be here. I mean, they all talk about what an old boys network this place is. This account from the 80s. Anne Collins, number 22. On my first day in Parliament, the National Front Bench men gra uh, graded the Labour woman with marks out of 10. But it wasn't until the 1990s that a woman clinched the top job. Remember, the majority of my colleagues who selected me as leader were men. And so in the end, it's a matter of the leadership qualities. So did the fact that women were now at the peak of politics change any lingering sexist behaviour? I'm not sure whether it's generally known, but most of us have received death threats, rape threats. Uh, we get criticised all the time, uh, sometimes for what we wear. So it was awful and severe, but I'm not even going to repeat it because that's exactly what the bullies want. I remember being called a trout by David Cunliffe long since thankfully departed Parliament. Um, awful, terrible comments made about me by Labour leaders. National MP Judith Collins has been in Parliament for 17 years. She says there's not so much gender bias now when handing out portfolios. Over the years I have seen certain decisions that I've thought, you've got to be kidding me. With a more equal playing field, women are expected to be as robust as their male counterparts. I've seen other women MPs feel beaten down by the process and, f and absolutely grateful to get out of here. Now we have another woman trailblazer, our first Prime Minister, to give birth while in office. It's a real pleasure to introduce our little one to you all. Earlier this year, a comment made by national leader Simon Bridges was interpreted by some as sexist. We're just not seeing that focus from a part-time Prime Minister in government. Would he have said that to a male? Of course not. He wouldn't have said that at all, uh, because I think he can and has had the luxury of not having to worry about breastfeeding, for example. In terms of what Simon said about Jacinda Ardern, he needs to answer for that. Right now, women make up 40% of our parliamentarians. By party, women have always been well represented in the Greens. Labour has a goal of getting 50% women in their caucus at next election. I never used to support the idea of quotas or targets. I do now. So in this book of 150 women MPs over 100 years, who stands out? Oh, look, I think the, the first 15, I'll call them, and the 15th is uh, Professor Marilyn Waring. I liked Marilyn Waring a lot. Always liked um, uh, Helen Clark. All of them, in many respects, were groundbreakers. And remember that you have to make decisions in your time. So many of those women uh, stood up and addressed the issues of their time, and they sure made a difference. And all say the stars are not just part of history. It is really a woman's time to shine here in Parliament. Fina Owen reporting there. Hey, we've had lots of feedback on tonight's cannabis debate with Paula Bennett and Chloe Swarbrick. We will hear what you think after the break.
Kia ora, welcome back. We'll all have our say on the cannabis question next year, but for now, here's what some of our viewers are thinking. Linda Shalou emailed, Here's a thought. Don't use drugs if it jeopardises your ability to work, travel, etc. It's your choice. And Hassel K emailed, I wouldn't feel safe working with or trusting my or my family's lives with cannabis users. As a business owner, I wouldn't employ people. Matt Leach tweeted, Paula is all talk, says she doesn't like the status quo but doesn't support and hasn't produced any legislation that would decriminalise or legalise cannabis. Susie feels differently, tweeting, Well done, Paula, the voice of common sense and reason. Having done the research, whereas Chloe had lots of ideas and was excited about legal dope but had nothing about the consequences to ensure not working, driving or taking care of children while stoned. Thanks for your feedback. We will continue the conversation on our myriad social media channels. That's Q&A for this week. Tonight is up next. Thanks for watching and nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. That means thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. We'll see you after the Labor Day weekend on Mondays at 9.30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.